0: We've been in a series, I have decided. How many of you guys have appreciated this series, I have decided? It's based on a book called uh, The Celebration of Discipline, which sounds like an oxymoron, at least when I hear it The Celebration. Of discipline. When I think of discipline, you know, immediately culturally, I think of just like okay, waking up early and working out and having a schedule and all these things. But um, if you've taken any time with this book and as you've been listening, um, there's really a lot more to discipline than just like those kind of Type A personality things. And discipline is a beautiful part of our of our walk with the Lord. Today we're gonna be we're actually gonna be closing the series, um, and it's. And, and the topics we'll be discussing are worship and celebration. Worship and celebration. So, um, I'm really excited to talk about worship. Worship is like my favorite thing. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 a humongous part. I think it's a humongous part of all of our callings. But uh, as a worship leader, um, I it, it just means it means so much to me to be able to kind of share from my heart on this topic. Uh, today's t- today's message is entitled "Worth It" because you got to have a catchy title, right? You got to be like. I can't just call it worship and celebration, but it's called Worth It. So if you're taking notes, which I'm not assuming you are, you can write that down. <sighs> now for Scripture. Um, I always like to begin the message with Scripture because the first time I preached, I didn't realize it, but I, was at, I preached at youth when I think I was like 18 years old, and I preached an entire message, and I did not quote Scripture. And my youth pastor was like, good job, but <clears throat> you didn't preach the Word. And I was like, I'll do better next time. So nowadays, I like to start with Scripture just in case uh, and make sure that if everything else I say is absolutely silly and nonsense, at least you heard the word of God spoken. Um, So we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel this morning. We're going to be reading from two different chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 12. So you'll want to put your thumb, one, and your index finger in the other. That's great. But we're going to be in in 2 Samuel. I want to give a little bit of context for this first chapter, 2 Samuel 6. So the Philistines, several chapters before, a while back they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is, or was the basically the physical representation of the presence of God. It was very, very important. Now, I'm so thankful, and aren't you, that we live on this side of the cross and that we live on this side of Pentecost and because of that, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and that we don't have to think about the, the presence of God being like in an ark, but we have the presence of God dwelling in us and with us. And I'm just so thankful for that. But in this time... In 2 Samuel, the ark was the presence of God. It was the representation. It was was a very holy thing. And the Philistines, who were some of the primary enemies of Israel during that time, during Saul's reign, Saul was the first king of Israel, um, they stole it, but then, after they stole it, they found that it was not good for them to have it. Um, Everywhere they took it, bad things happened to them. And um, probably because it didn't belong to them, right? Um, who knew, right? Uh, the, the, the ark just didn't belong in there. So they would, they would take it one place and something would happen. They'd be like, okay, we got to remove it. And they'd take it another place and then something would happen. And so eventually they're like, you know what, Israel? Take it back. This is not doing us any good. We should have just taken some more gold or something because this ark is not helping us. But an interesting thing happens. When they return it, they don't actually return it or they didn't return it to, to Jerusalem, its, its rightful home. They actually returned it to the house of Abinadab in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And it stayed there for 20 years. Um, and so after those 20 years, David, uh, he, he becomes king of Israel. He's, he's anointed and kind of set in as king. And, you know, being David, he's like, I'm going to get that ark back to Jerusalem. I need the ark in my city. And so he goes and he makes an attempt with some of his men to put the ark on a cart, which was a no-no, because the ark was meant to be borne by people, not by a cart. So they put it on a cart, they start toting along, they're like, yeah, we're going to Jerusalem, ark's going to be in Jerusalem, we're feeling good. And then the ark slips and one of the guys goes, no, and he tries to stop it from falling and immediately he's dead. Just boom, because you don't touch the ark, okay? The ark is, you just don't touch the ark. So David gets super discouraged. David's super discouraged. He's like, he's like, oh, man, maybe, you know, I don't even think I can bring the ark to Jerusalem, so I'm just going to go back. And So they, they, leave the, they leave the ark at the house of Obed-Edom, and the ark stays there for three months. And during those three months, David is hearing stuff, and they're like, hey, have you heard about Obed-Edom? He's like, yeah, with well, the place where he left the ark, yeah, what, what about him? Well, he's getting super blessed. You know, like, pretty much nothing go wrong for him. Like, everything he does, it just is, like, just prospering. And David's like... Right. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. That's the ark of God. Okay. I'm going to get that ark. And so he musters up some courage and he's like, I'm going back to get that ark, but I'm doing it right this time. I'm doing it right this time. And this is where we find him in second Samuel chapter six. We're going to start in verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. We're going to address that, but let's go ahead and skip six chapters ahead and we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now the context of this scripture is quite different. King David has been king for a while. And um, I think maybe he's maybe just getting a little too big for his britches because he thinks that he has the right to watch women bathing on the roof. Um, and so he sees a woman bathing on the roof, and he sees that he's attracted to her. And so he goes, and uh, she's a married woman, and he commits adultery with her. And to make matters more complicated, she becomes pregnant. And then David, being the upstanding man after God's own heart that he is, attempts to cover up the pregnancy in two kind of underhanded, not so cool ways. Not that any way of covering up a pregnancy with someone that, you, I mean, that's just not really a good way of doing that. But David invites this woman, Bathsheba's husband, back to convince him to sleep with her so that he can cover up the pregnancy and be like, oh, they'll never know, it was, they'll never know it's my baby. But Uriah is acting as a man of honor. He's like, my troops are out there at war, the same place that you should be, David. He doesn't actually say that to David because David's the king, but he could have rebuked David in that way and he would have been right to because David was supposed to be at war. It was springtime. It was the time for kings to be at war and David stayed back. But Uriah says, no, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife. I'm not doing that. My troops are out there. I need to be leading them. So he doesn't. And David's like, Man, I thought for sure that was going to work. You invite a husband home from battle to sleep with his wife to cover this up, and that didn't even work. And so he goes even another step grosser, and he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle, which was essentially a death sentence. And that's how he covers up the pregnancy, is sending the husband to his death and he thinks he gets away with it and I'm sure he's probably having the inner ter- turmoil that David has I mean if you've read the Psalms you know David is just like sometimes a, like just a babbling mess he's just like but Lord but yeah, but, but he, he keeps it inside and so this prophet Nathan comes and he begins to tell David a story and he's telling him he's telling him and David's getting angry he's like who, who did this who did this no we gotta do something about this and Nathan goes the man is you I'm talking about you. And immediately David is broken and repentant and realizes just the error of his ways. And Nathan says, God's going to spare your life, but your child is going to die. And so this is where we find David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wore bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to read it, that we get to consume it, that we get to study it, and that we get to preach it without any fear of being killed today. We thank you that your your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and that we can trust the authority of your word. We pray this morning that your truth would be spoken and everything else would fall to the ground and be forgotten. Have your way in this place teach us what it means to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as uh, I've been preparing for this message, um, my wife and I have been house-sitting for my parents, and my parents have a dog. Um, He's a Yorkshire Terrier, um, and his name is Kai. How many of you guys know Kai? Okay. (laughs) Kai. Kai. Yeah, so Kai. So you might be thinking, oh, he's mentioning a dog. He's talking about worship. He's going to be talking about the Greek word for worship, which has the word kiss in it, which refers to a dog licking his master's hand and loving him forever. But I'm actually not going that direction today because I don't think Kai is a good representation of worship at all. <laughs> and I'll, I'll argue with there. I mean, if you got a, a theological you know, thought behind that, I, I'm not sure how much I agree with the whole dogs being true worshipers thing, at least not Kai. And so... Kai, in, in summary, Kai has a lot to handle. Kai is 10 years old, which is like 70 in dog years, right? But for some reason, he still has the energy of a puppy. Like the energy that, let's say it's 4.50 a.m. this morning, at least yesterday morning. I don't know how early it was this morning, honey, but it's 4.50 a.m., and he is on top of you, whining and pawing at your face. That's how you wake up. And he's pawing at your face. This is the type of energy that this, that this dog has. Kai, he's, he can be a little bit tough to get along with. The word, I would say that the word selfish would be a drastic understatement for who Kai is. I would say maybe we could, maybe another better word would be painfully narcissistic. I think, I think that that would be a better word for it. You know, he'll show you affection. He will, he will. If you have a treat in your hand, or if he feels like you're going in for a belly rub, right, he'll just kind of turn over and be like, hey, or if he thinks you're going to be taking him for a walk. Now, yes, I I recognize that all dogs love walks, and, and this is nothing new, but If you haven't met Kai, you haven't met Kai. We literally, like, you know how parents sometimes, before their kids know how to spell, and they want to keep secrets from them, they'll they'll spell things. They'll be like, when they're talking about Christmas presents or whatever, or maybe it's something inappropriate, too mature for the kids to know, they'll spell it, and they'll be able to talk about things, and it's like the code language for parents. That's what we do around Kai. When it comes to the word walk, we literally go, hey, um, hey honey, are you going to take him for the W-A-L-K? Because if you mention it, he will lose his mind. (laughs) So, if you do end up mentioning it, by chance, to your dismay, I do want to give a little bit of a guide for, because you will need to walk him. It will become your responsibility as soon as you mention that, if you don't want to ruin everyone else's evening. There are a few things to be on the lookout for. Two primary things. You're walking Kai. First thing. I'll just call it locations of interest. If Kai stops, now we're talking about a little dog. Little, like, he's not stronger than you. But if Kai stops, let it be known, if he stops to sniff, or to dig, or to mark an area, let it be known that he would rather be choked, have his claws ripped from his paws, and the skin scraped from his paws, just completely off, than move one inch in the direction that you are going. Number two, be lighthearted about this when I say this, okay? Don't get offended. The other thing to be on the watch for is turkey poop. (laughs) If Kai sees the droppings of a turkey, he will pursue it with reckless abandon And consume it. And a lot of times before you can even know about it, you're just like just walking along and you see him do something like, and you're just like, whatever, he'll just keep going. And then you get back to the house and you're like, good boy, and he breathes in your face and you're like, what have you done? What, What have you gotten to? On the off chance that you are able to see him going for it and you're able to intervene, beware, because there is nothing that Kai will fight harder for or bite your hand over than a fresh piece of turkey poop. <laughs> now, once you're safely inside, I'm serious. You think I'm exaggerating, you don't know Kai. Now, once you're safely inside, after that process, you must remember to give him his snack, his snack. We actually abbreviate it to knack. That's how we recognize it. I don't really know why we do that, but we just, we just do. We just say, hey, you ready for the knack or whatever? And he just like freaks. But if you forget, it, so think about the logic of this. We're rewarding him for doing the one thing that he thinks about all day long. It's like, you did so good doing your favorite thing. Here's a reward for doing your favorite thing. So once this process is complete, you may have this feeling, according to his reaction towards you, I think this dog loves me. And you would be wrong. (laughs) Kai loves snacks, he loves belly rubs, and he loves walks. And if you give those things to him, he may show you some half-hearted, short-lived affection. But let me assure you, you are not the object of his worship. You are the object of his utility. Kai has found you useful to his purposes. Useful. That's where his affection comes from. Now, I know I'm giving Kai kind of a hard time today to make a point. I do love him in a sense. To a certain extent, I have love for Kai. And I will be sad when he is gone because no one likes a dog dying. I don't care if you hate the dog. When a dog dies, you could, it could be your, like your worst enemy and the dog dies and you're like, what, what about the memories? <clears throat> but I do honestly think that he is a terrible representation of what true worship is. And when I think about it, Kai is a little bit like a child. You know, when we're really young, we have this tendency to appreciate or value the the loved ones around us us because they do things for us. It's like, mama is the one who feeds me. I love mama, she helps me survive. Um, And we, 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 we associate every relationship and it's not like we have this like deep logical thing i mean we're we're one or two or like our brain isn't working that way but we we associate every relationship with what they do for us and so mama and dada daddy whatever dada i haven't said it in a long time i mean i say mama all the time but <laughs> dada uh they are the ones who feed us and and they clothe us and they put us to bed and they rock us and they Make us feel happy, and then when they don't make us feel happy, we're like giving some toot or we cry, and we're just like, "Forget you." Um, (laughs) And I'm not hating on kids, right? Okay, hear me out. I think it's natural. I think it's a part of this probably the survival instinct inside of us that we that and when we're really little, we treat people well who you know help us live. And I think it's probably also has something a little bit to do with us being born into sin. But as we grow older, as we grow older, um, I think we typically go one of two ways with this. We either continue on in this pattern of this egocentrism that looks at every relationship from, from the perspective of what do they do for me? What do they give me? What benefit do I receive from this? What am I getting out of it? We either continue with that or we deviate. We deviate and we start thinking, wow, people are valuable because they're people. People are worth getting to know, worth serving, worth giving to. I wonder how my words and actions make them feel. And we begin to decide that people are worth our time and our focus and our energy simply because they're people. They have intrinsic value. Now, this deviation, I don't actually think is a deviation at all. I think it's called growing up. I think it's part of maturing. But the reason I call it a deviation is because not everyone gets there. You know, it might be funny to visualize a 30-year-old, you know, toddler. But unfortunately, I think it happens. And I think that people get stunted and they get stuck in a season of life that was only meant to be passed through. And they get stuck in a place that never allows them to live life to the fullest. Because I don't know about you, but I've found that life to the fullest is not a life centered around me. And as tragic as it is for human to human relationships to operate that way, I think the stakes are even higher when it comes to our relationship with God. You know, as new believers, we often, from the beginning, we can recognize that God has done good things for us. We can recognize that it makes us feel better to be with him, that we have good experiences in his presence. And we learn to worship him because of what he does for us. But as we walk along with the Lord... As we draw closer to him, as we dive deeper into his word, as we develop a real relationship with him through prayer, through meditation, through spending time with him, through fellowship with other believers, through iron sharpening iron. I really believe in my heart that God draws us into a deeper worship than what I've mentioned before, that he draws us into a truer worship. And I think that scripture talks about it. I think this deeper worship is something that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John. If you want to turn there with me, it's not going to be up here. I only gave the Samuel scriptures to the media folks. So John chapter 4, verse 23, if you guys want to turn there. If you don't, that's cool, but you could. John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. You guys might recognize this scripture. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You guys ever, you guys have read that verse before or heard it spoken before? Have you ever wondered what that means, to worship in spirit and in truth? Or do you guys just got it? You guys just totally nailed spirit and truth, easy peasy, got it. Well, I don't, I didn't really know what it means, and I'm still not totally sure I know what it means, but I felt compelled this week talking about worship that I should probably look into the way that Jesus talks about true worship, and so I wanted to begin with looking at the words that Jesus used in the original language, and so the first one I want to talk about is truth. Actually, the first one I want to talk about is spirit. I can't believe I did that two two times in a row. (laughs) Last night, I was like, first truth. Actually, first spirit. First spirit. Okay? So the word that Jesus uses here is the Greek word pneuma, which does mean spirit, of course. It can also be translated to wind or breath. It's the word used in the term Holy Spirit. In his name, the word pneuma is involved with that. And and, and pneuma usually does mean spirit, even though it can mean breath or wind. And then truth is aletheia. Aletheia. Which... It, of course, means truth, but not just in the sense of telling the truth. It has connotations of of reality, of sincerity, and of a divine revelation of truth. And so based on my study of these two words in the context of the gospel of John, in the context of Jesus' ministry, in the context of the New New Testament— I kind of think I have a way of maybe explaining what worship in spirit and truth means, but this is not scripture, and so if I'm wrong, I mean, cool, hopefully you can find a better explanation for it soon. So, Jesus' statement explained, from what I can understand, is that true worshipers will worship the Father from the spirit, I'm sorry, from the depths of who they are as their spirit connects with the spirit. And they will worship him sincerely according to the revelation of truth that they have received from him. Now, I know that's a lot longer than spirit and truth. But I, I, it gives some more meaning to it for me. I'm going to read it one more time. True worshipers will worship the Father from the depths of who they are as their spirit connects with the spirit. And they will worship him sincerely according to the revelation of truth that they have received from him. I believe that there is a depth, there is an intimacy, there is a sincerity, and there is an accuracy to true worship. There is a depth, there is a sincerity, there is an intimacy, and there is an accuracy to true worship. And accuracy you might be going, well, all those other ones feel like kind of lovey-dovey, but accuracy feels a little cold. Well, the reason I use that term is because I think that a part of the revelation of truth that we receive and are able to worship with is an understanding of who God actually is. Because sometimes we can get really emotional and be all out in our worship for him and have a very distorted view of who he is and a misunderstanding. And I think there's a lot of grace for that, just to be honest. I think there's a lot of grace for misunderstanding God. Nevertheless, I think the worship that we are called to is a worship that involves true understanding of who we are worshiping. And the reason I say depths of our being is because when it says in spirit, I think that scripture makes the argument that spirit, our spirit, is really the truest element of our person. That there is the, there's the body, our emotions, and there's our spirit. But it is the spirit that endures. It is the spirit that with which the Holy Spirit bears witness to our sonship. And so when we worship in spirit, I think part of that is that we worship God at the very core of who we are. We worship him from the deepest element of our identity. Now, King David, the interesting thing about King David is he, he lived hundreds of years before Jesus. But I think that he... For some reason, I think God chose to give him a revelation of worshiping in spirit and in truth. I truly believe that David got something in his time that other people didn't get. And I think that's one of the primary reasons that he's referred to in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and Acts 13 as a man after God's own heart. I think part of it was because he knew how to worship. And I think that if we look back at these two chapters, that David has something to show us about what it means to be a true worshiper that's the term that Jesus used he said true worshipers will worship god in spirit and in truth so let's see what david shows us i think the first thing i see right off the bat at the beginning of this passage is that true worshipers know how to celebrate true worshipers know how to celebrate in chapter 6, verse 12, it says that David brought the ark into Jerusalem with rejoicing. And later on, he says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate before. He came in with rejoicing. I don't know why. I have a, I have a feeling as to why. But I think that a large part of the church has lost the art of celebration. For some reason or another, I think maybe we associate celebration with the sin of the world. We, we we hear the word party and we go, ooh, yucky, not Christian. Ooh, bad. No, 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 no. Because we associate it with drunkenness or we associate it with drug abuse or we associate it with sleeping around with people. But let me submit to you that the enemy doesn't own celebration. All the enemy can do, he doesn't, he doesn't own any of it. All he can do, all he can do is pervert it and twist it and then try to package it up in this garbage version that we accept and we go, oh, that's what partying is. No, believers have more reason than any person on this planet to celebrate. And I would submit to you today, I would submit to you today that if you're a believer, I challenge you, you had better be the life of the party. You had, I had better be the life of the party. And, 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 and I say that and you go, what do you mean the person who gets drunk the quickest? No, that's a distortion and a perversion that the enemy has brought, that the life of the party means the person who gets wasted and starts dancing around acting like an idiot. The life of the party is someone who injects joy into a situation, someone who injects hope into a situation, someone who walks in the room and and you said, I was feeling a little bit uncomfortable and weird before on the dance floor, but now that he's here, I can let go. I can and for those of you who think that dancing is sinful, turn that off. Turn that off. David danced with all of his might. Dancing belongs to the kingdom of God. And anything, any kind of dancing that is overtly sexual and perverted is again just a twisted version that the enemy has tried to give us. I am gonna dance because my God owns dancing. Some sexual pop music doesn't own dancing. My God owns it. And because I'm his son, that means I share in the ownership. Yes. Dancing belongs to me. Come on. Come on. Celebration belongs to me, not the enemy. Yes. And I think that believers need to stop having the reputation of being the wet towel on the party. Good. Good. Are you known as, your bo- as the boring friend of your friend group? Wow. wow. Are you known as the boring one? Oh, we would invite Seth, but, you know, he's like, doesn't like to do fun things. He's like such a downer. If you're known as the boring friend, I challenge you today. That is not what you're called to. That is not what Jesus has called to. Jesus has called us to be the life of the party, the light of the party, the joy of the party. We have the authority to inject joy into a situation where there is none. Okay, we're going to move on. True worshipers bring an offering instead of demanding a blessing. I'll say that again. True worshipers bring an offering instead of demanding a blessing. In chapter 6, verse 13, David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal every six steps. One, two, three, four. One. I did only four steps. No, six. Just I don't want to count them all out. You get it. One, two, three, four, five, six. There was a price to his worship. It wasn't just a dance party. There was a sacrifice in his worship. Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you think that New Testament worship doesn't involve a sacrifice, read the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, I want to be clear. I do not think it is wrong to approach God with expectation. I think scripture encourages us us to approach God with expectation. We can believe for good things because we have a good daddy, okay? That's okay. I'm not saying just, just go to God and offer up your offering and just... Be miserable, but hey, you brought your offering. No, that's not what God has for you. But here's what I'm saying I, be, I think it becomes unhealthy when we go to worship and we go, oh man, I'm about to get filled up. I'm, I'm, God's about to give me something. I'm, I'm worshiping. Wow. And, and then have you ever walked away from a worship service? You walk away and you go, I just don't really feel like I got anything out of that. I just didn't really feel like I was fed. Well, that's a good thing because it wasn't about you getting something. It was about you offering something. Worship is an offering. Worship is, hey, yeah. Yeah, are you going to be blessed as a son and daughter? Yeah, I guess you are. I guess he's going to work miracles in your life. But that's not why we worship. We worship because we have something to give him, and that is praise, and that is a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, that is a declaration on our lips of who he is, and that is ministering to him. Next time you come to heart of the city church, I challenge you. Don't come here to get ministered to. Come here to minister. Yes. Come here to minister. Yes. Ephesians chapter four talks about the, the, the apople, po- Wow, the apostles, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists. How many did I say? Did I get them all? Well, all five of them, okay? (laughs) He says they came for the equipping of of, of the work of the ministry, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not to do the work of the ministry. If you think that you are disqualified from ministering to other people and ministering to God, then you have a misunderstanding of the New Testament. You are a minister, you are a priest. You're a priest. You get to minister. To the most high God. You get to step into the holy place without carrying, having a little rope on your ankle in case you die. Because he has chosen to be with you and to allow you to minister to his own heart. That is our worship. True worshipers allow their heart to overflow into their behavior. True worshipers allow their hearts to overflow into their behavior. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 says, It says that David danced with all his might, and all of Israel brought the ark in with shouting and the sound of a horn. Let me see, say first that I believe the most critical element to worship is the heart. I do believe that it's what's going on inside that far supersedes the physical expression of worship. However, I will say this we know from Scripture that from the heart proceeds our words and our behaviors. So, if the worship on your inside isn't translating to words and actions on your outside, my question to you is why? Both words, both in Hebrew and in Greek, in Hebrew, shaka, and in Greek, proskuneo, have a literal translation of a physical posture. A physical posture. And it's not just this, by the way, it's this. Proskuneo literally means to kiss toward, and it's translated as to be prostrate. Now, I'm not at all saying that your physical expression of worship has to look like mine. In fact, I celebrate and hope for a diversity, a beautiful rainbow. And by the way, the kingdom of God owns the rainbow too, just saying. A beautiful rainbow of worship expression. I think that if you're worshiping in spirit and truth, eventually something is going to overflow. And if it doesn't, I think that it's either because of fear, because of a lack of understanding, or because of disability. True worshipers lead their feelings, not the other way around. True worshipers lead their feelings not the other way around. In chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, it says that David's servants told him that his child had died. He immediately rose up, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Can you just put yourself in David's shoes for a minute? Do you think he was feeling it that day? Do you think that he went up in the house of the Lord going, I'm fixing to get my praise on I think we give far too much credence and far too much prominence to our emotions in the church. We think that, we think in worship, this, oh, this bothers me. Well, I'm not going to raise my hands because I'm not feeling it. And if I do it, then that would be fake. Being genuine is not being true to how you feel. Let me just that little bubble. Being genuine is not being true to how you feel. Being genuine is being true to who you are. And who you are, if you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, is a worshiper. You are a worshiper. That is who you are. And because you came to church sad or you didn't get enough sleep or because a dog was on your chest whining and scraping at your face, that does not determine your worship. You know, John Piper has this saying, I love it. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified when we are most, that's something I can get behind. Oh, God wants me to be satisfied in him. I like satisfied. He's most glorified. But then he adds another idea to it that's not as easy to swallow. He says, even in the midst of suffering, God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him when I am in my mess. When I am at the lowest of lows. When I've never felt more pain in my life. God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. In that place. I would argue that worshiping when you don't feel like it is the most authentic thing that you actually can do. And here's why. When we worship when we don't feel like it. When we worship him, worship him when we're in the midst of the storm. When we worship him when a loved one just got diagnosed with cancer. When we worship him when we just lost our job. It shows that we have a revelation of the worth of God that is beyond what the human senses can sense. It's beyond my sight, it's beyond my touch, it's beyond my hear, it's beyond my smell. I have a sense of his worth that is beyond what I'm empirically experiencing. True worshipers refuse to be driven by the fear of man. Both situations. David dancing, his wife is like, what are you doing, rebuking him? He says, Again, this is where it says, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will become more undignified, more contemptible than this. I will become more undignified than this. And then in chapter 12, his servants come to him and are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Your child just died. Why are you, what are you, what are you doing? And, and, and David, he responds very interestingly. If I could sum up what he's saying, he would be, he, he said something along the lines of, What's done is done. God is sovereign. I can't bring my child back, and I have to continue on in what he has called me to. David was not faced by the opinions of the people around him when it came to his worship. David knew what he was called to. He knew in, from, from, from something inside, from God calling to him, he knew what he needed to do, and he responded accordingly. And that is exactly what you and I are called to do. Let's not let fear of man be the reason that we don't offer a sacrifice of praise. Finally, and this is kind of the whole point of the message, and that is that true worshipers understand that God's worth is derived from his identity more so than his great deeds. God's worth is derived from his identity more so than his great deeds. What I find in chapter 6 and 12 Of 2 Samuel is that David is forced to look beyond his current situation. In chapter 6, one of his buddies dies. In chapter 12, his child dies. And he decides here's my situation. God is good. Here's my situation. God is faithful, God never fails. God never fails. God has my back. God has my good in mind. He's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my praise. David got it. Now, I recognize that David does a lot of praising God for what he does too. And I think that we should as well. We should praise God for who he is and for what he's done. We should tell of his great deeds. But the distinction that I'm making is this. What about When in your season, the deeds don't look very great. What about when you can't perceive any evidence in your current place in life that God is looking out for you? True worshipers in that moment are able to cling to the worth of God. And continue to worship him in the midst of the circumstances totally cool to praise him for what he's done he's done great things let's tell people about it let's tell him about it but when we can't see the great deeds in our current moment does the worship grow silent